Support for Mississippi Edition comes from Mississippi State University Center for Distance Education, providing online programs and certification at the graduate and undergraduate levels. Distance at State, even there you're here. More information at distance.msstate.edu. It's 8.30 on Monday, May 14th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, find out how Mississippi mental health care advocates are working to educate and to fight stigma associated with mental illness. If everybody is trained to think and see that kid who might be struggling and pull them in, that can be what saves their life. And after Everyday Tech, May is Stroke Awareness Month. Hear the story of how a daughter identified her mother's stroke in the nick of time. Then, insect-borne viruses like West Nile infecting more Mississippians. Why experts say it's preventable. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Topping off headlines, the executive director of the Mississippi Emergency Management Agency has unexpectedly resigned. Lee Smithson is stepping aside from his role as Mississippi's emergency management director, effective immediately. In a statement from Governor Phil Bryant's office, communications director Clay Chandler says the governor was made aware of a, quote, situation. Bryant accepted Smithson's resignation Friday. Key staff members at the Mississippi Emergency Management Agency said the news was not delivered to the agency until Saturday. Before joining MEMA, Smithson was both an active duty and reserve member of the military, retiring a colonel from the Mississippi National Guard. We will continue to follow the story and bring you updates. To see our team's updates throughout the day, follow MPB News on Twitter. In other news, more than 130,000 Mississippi children have significant mental health challenges, but 80% of them don't get the help they need. As MPB's Desiree Frazier reports, efforts are underway to combat the stigma of mental illness. Teresa Mosley says in 2006, her 15-year-old daughter Elizabeth committed suicide. She's sharing her story at a mental health summit in Jackson. Mosley says her daughter struggled with anxiety and depression. She says Elizabeth felt a burden for social issues like homelessness and hunger. Mosley hoped counseling would help. And I can remember sitting in a therapy session with her and um, the therapist saying, what is it that makes you sad, Elizabeth? And she said, well, mostly everything. Mosley learned when her daughter was giving away things that were important to her, she had made up her mind to commit suicide. She hopes her experience will help others. John Damon is with Canopy Children's Solutions. The nonprofit agency provides mental health care services to children. He says overcoming the stigma associated with mental illness is a challenge. Damon says everyone involved with children should know the signs someone may have a mental health issue. We need to have the kind of culture in our schools and culture on our ball teams and our various groups in our churches and our Sunday school classes where we're looking for the one kid who's struggling, the, the one who is not sitting with anyone. Scott Miller of the International Center for Clinic Excellence in Chicago says... Mental health professionals are just as effective as medical providers. If you have a family member or if you are struggling, you should reach out because what they do has an effect size that is equivalent to most medical procedures. Canopy serves 5,000 children at 20 offices statewide. Desiree Frazier, MPB News. 
Coming up, hear the story of how a daughter identified her mother's stroke in the nick of time. That's after Everyday Tech. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This is Everyday Tech on Mississippi Edition. I'm Michelle McAdoo with Wilts Couture, and today we're discussing general technology and how technology affects our everyday lives. So, Wilts, technology is all around us in our everyday lives, from when we wake up in the morning to when we go to bed at night. There's no way to get through your day without being impacted by technology in some way. Well, that's true. From the moment we wake up, I mean... Yes, the alarm clock. We may not sometimes think about the technology behind that, but really the alarm clock is the first piece of technology we're interacting with during the day. For me, that's followed up by just using an electronic toothbrush. And what about those coffee pots? You know, how many people now wake up and the coffee's waiting on them? I know my wife sets hers the night before, and it's just she wakes up to a nice fresh cup of coffee. So there's intelligence and technology that goes into that as well. So... So getting us going in the morning is is definitely technology-influenced. And then that moves on to the morning commute, say going into work. I mean, what are we affected by in tech in that way? You've got the car that we hop into. Well, there are safety features, and there are safety features on the cars around us, thankfully, that are also influenced by technology, be it the, the more common, the low-tech, hey, it's got brakes and turn signals, or even the backup cameras and lane change alerts and all the other newer things that we're starting to see become more common or standard features in these cars. So so now we're surrounded by technology just trying to get to the office. We all easily see where technology kind of comes in in the office too. You know, we walk on in, there's a computer on the desk. You'd be hard-pressed to say that technology has not changed how we go about our daily tasks or accomplish them. Um, one thing that comes to mind is the accounting department in our office. You know, back in the olden days, just a few years ago, they were sitting there over those green striped pieces of paper trying to work through journal entries and everything else. Well, now everything is digital and it can happen a lot faster. So we really see where that comes in for the office worker or even the factory worker out on the floor. Just, you know, robotics, uh, you know, nearby we have car manufacturers and everything else. So so that technology and that advancement is making it easier and quicker to accomplish these tasks that used to take hours or even days. So what we're saying is technology has allowed us to accomplish in minutes what would have taken all day. You're absolutely right. It has helped us to accomplish many things that would have taken a lot longer. And in many instances, it's also helped us to accomplish those same tasks safer and more efficiently and more accurately. Technology has allowed a lot of people to work from home. They don't even have to go into an office, correct? Well, exactly, yes. You can actually, through VPN technology and other ways to connect into office resources, you can actually work from your house. So you could be getting your daily job done while sitting there sipping a cup of coffee out of your coffee pot in your pajamas. And so getting us through the day with technology, you know, a lot of times we see that as as an office function, but really... It goes back in the car with us when we go home. What about when you turn on the radio in the afternoon? Just some people listening to our broadcast today, you could be hearing this from the Internet. You could be hearing it from the radio. You could be hearing it from satellite radio. So so really even radio has changed, just like t- uh, television has changed in that we have streaming services now and you're getting more things on demand so the technology is actually bringing us the news in a different way, be it that in our commute or or at the house. And then let's not forget, once you get home in the evening and you've made your way through dinner and you're finally relaxing and you're about to lay your head down, technology is there too. 
It could be that CPAP machine that is helping people with sleep apnea get a better night's sleep and a safer night's sleep. It could be the security system that you turn on in your house that makes sure that whenever you lay your head down at night, you can actually lay your head down at night with peace. And it could even be something as simple as that fire alarm or that carbon monoxide detector sitting in your home that makes sure that as you are sleeping that you and your family stay safe at night. So we can really see that from sunup to sundown, from the time we wake to the time we sleep, and even while we're asleep, technology is definitely there to help us, to make our jobs easier, to keep us safe, to keep our families safe. The thing we need to be mindful of, however, is that we use technology to enhance our experiences and our tasks and not replace the human aspect of what we're working to accomplish. We will talk more about general technology and how it affects our everyday lives on the next Everyday Tech, the show that comes on Wednesdays at 10 a.m. You can always send us an email to everydaytech at mpbonline.org. For Woods Couture, I'm Michelle McAdoo. This is Everyday Tech on Mississippi Edition. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Mississippians suffer from strokes in greater numbers than any other state, according to medical experts. 8,000 Mississippians suffer from strokes each year. About 1,000 die, according to Dr. Chad Washington. He's a neurosurgeon at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. He tells MPB's Desiree Frazier the factors that contribute to suffering a stroke. Sometimes it's due to a combination of high blood pressure, high cholesterol, Smoking is probably the biggest uh, risk factor that can be changed. Um, Problems with a person's heart. When you talk about stroke, is there a different way that it affects a man than a woman because that's one of the things they're finding out about heart attack, that the symptoms are different? Typically, no. The symptoms tend to be the same. Women do have a little bit of higher risk for certain types of stroke, uh, but the symptoms tend to be the same between males and females. And what are they? Uh, well, it depends on the type of stroke, but if for an ischemic stroke, which is the most common, if you um, have a loss of the ability to, to speak, uh, you notice a facial droop um, or sagging of the face. If you're weak on one side or you feel numbness or tingling on one side, um, or if you're all of a sudden very dizzy, uh, that's called vertigo. Uh, Those are all signs and symptoms with stroke. It seems like every individual that has a stroke, it impacts them differently? Not every stroke is the same, and not every person is equally affected by a stroke. So it depends a lot on which part of the brain has been um, affected. Is it possible that the brain can heal itself, or can you go in and do something to the brain to improve quality of life? Once they've had a stroke uh, and are in the recovery phase, there is some healing of the brain uh, and some ability of the brain to sort of what we say rewire, uh, but that's not the same for every patient. So some patients will have a stroke and their symptoms will stay there for the rest of their life. Some patients will have a stroke and the symptoms will, over time, will improve. Uh, It really is very patient-specific. How can a person protect themselves from getting a stroke? In Mississippi, the biggest thing you can do is stop smoking. The next thing you can do is have regular visits with your primary care physician where you make sure that your blood pressure and cholesterol are controlled. 
Dr. Chad Washington. Irene Williams is a supervisor at a medical clinic in Jackson. She says her mother had a stroke years ago. She tells MPB's Desiree Frazier she could tell something wasn't right, even though her mom could not. My mother suffered a stroke, a hemorrhage, during revival at church. I noticed her having some slumping or or facial changes at that time. And I went to her and asked her, was she feeling okay? And she immediately said, yes, I'm doing fine. Is my makeup okay? Do I look okay? And I said, did you take any medicine? And she said, just my blood pressure medicine. And I said, okay. And she said, well, I want to stay. And I said, well, I think we need to go. So from that point, we were able to get her uh, to the hospital and... It took at least another two hours before she had the stroke. And, you know, she lost bodily functions at that point. But she was still able to communicate with us. So we did watch her go through that process. Now, it's a good thing that you recognize the signs. Maybe someone else wouldn't have been paying attention. Exactly, exactly. Because, as a matter of fact, it was a very good thing. I was actually sitting in the choir. And when I looked at her, I just it, she had a stare and, again, uh, mouth drooping, and her eyes looked very glassed over. So, again, after getting her there, I constantly communicated with her and then also helped her understand she couldn't get up. And I said, I'm going to need you to use a bedpan because they don't want you to get up. She's very cooperative, though, and um, she understood that. Within the next 8 to 10 hours, it was a a critical thing because it was a hemorrhage. So that meant her brain, there was bleeding going on in the brain? There was bleeding going on in the brain at that, yes, during that time. Um, What they explained to us, it was called the Widowmaker because they said they see people come in um, like this. People may be driving home from work or and say they're not feeling like themselves, and within hours they're deceased. So I asked to look at the x-rays or the CT scans, and um, they did give me that opportunity, and her frontal lobe was full of blood. So they called the family in, and they said, we can't give her anything to stop the bleeding, but we can give something for the swelling. And I said, well, go ahead and give it to her. And during this whole time, she was conscious. She was communicating. Was she saying she was in any pain? None. No pain. After the ICU and getting her to a room, because she did survive, what they gave her took the swelling down. And the brain has a way of absorbing the blood back. Looking at someone like my mother and her not being able to really turn to the left, turn to the right, her her focal point is just looking straight. And she's still alive. She's 87. Um, We just more recently had um, some other um, situations because her blood pressure has been the issue all along, but the blood pressure uh, in January became elevated again. And um, she had been on blood pressure medicine to the point where it started some angioedema, some swelling, lip swelling, tongue swelling, and they took her off. And once they did that, she started to have uh, elevated blood pressures to the point 
we had a, a similar situation, thinking she was having a stroke in January of this year, and she ended up having slurred speech, and we came to the ER again um, doing pretty much the same thing, but she walked out of the hospital again. She was taking high blood pressure medicine when she had the stroke. Both times. How can that be when they urge people to take their medicine? I'm uh, the fifth child of seven children, and in that, the two that have suffered a stroke were smokers, a brother and a sister. So the circumstances surrounding that, and from my personal experience, is stress. Circumstances, life circumstances, changes, even being on medication, um, the control of or the lack of control of, of stress and life circumstances bring more pressure. So um, your family obviously um, has a history of stroke. Yes. How do you communicate to people how to protect themselves? Trying to educate people um, tends to be the most, most significant point. After working in healthcare and listening to a lot of the conversations that people have, African Americans in particular like to say, well, everybody in my family has high blood pressure, but, you know, and I don't take my medicine like I should. And and I said, well, that's one of those things that you do need to consider. Um, Changing a lot of things in your lifestyle, those things are important. I've lost weight myself because I know uh, stroke and heart disease run in the family. So I am putting myself in a, in a, uh, a more healthier situation. So I try to advise people to do that. It doesn't go over well because people think you're then trying to run their lives or tell them how to run their lives. They get upset. Say, you can't tell me, you know, how much to eat, how less to eat, or watch my sodium or those things. But it is so important. Caregiver Irene Williams with our Desiree Frazier. Dr. Rick DeShazo is professor of medicine and pediatrics at UMMC. He says getting to the hospital quickly can reduce complications from strokes. There are two kinds of strokes. There's a thrombus where you have a blood clot in a blood vessel, and then there's a bleed where you pop a hole in a blood vessel and have a bleed. Not much we can do for the bleeds other than once they've occurred, but the thrombus, the clot, is the more common type of stroke. So over the years, people have tried to do various things, use anticoagulants. It didn't really work that well after the stroke had happened. But uh, for the last several years, there have been neurologists and other interventional people, like interventional radiologists, trained to go up and get those clots out if they got the patients early enough, or to give folks uh, these thrombolytic agents which dissolve the clot. And so when you come into the emergency room with stroke symptoms, the first thing you do is quickly get a brain imaging to find out whether you have a bleed or a clot. If you have a clot, a decision is immediately made within minutes whether or not to give you a clot buster or to go up and get it. And it has to do with a bunch of medical decisions that are made. If you go up and get that blood clot, can you stop any resulting debilitation after? The original data were equivocal. 
But now that we have a larger amount of data, we do know that it uh, does spare complications more than not doing it at all. It does not completely get rid of all the complications, but uh, it, it can make a big stroke have a much larger effect and can ha- have a little stroke have very little effect. What can you advise people to do? You don't go to the dock in the box or to the quick care if you think you're having a stroke. That is a big mistake because you sit out in the waiting room for an hour and then they have to call them. You go to an emergency room and preferably one at a major medical center that will have the kind of people who work there who can take care of that. We're lucky in the Jackson area. We have several hospitals with that capability. Uh, and in most of Mississippi, you're within an hour of a place that has that. And that time to when you get there is what determines how bad your stroke is, how quickly they can get a clot buster in, go up and get it, or stop the bleeding if you've had a hemorrhage. Those are all crucial things. So a stroke is just like a heart attack, the same thing. you got to know the symptoms and what they are, and if you think you're having them, you go anyway, even if you're not totally sure, and do it quickly. Dr. Rick, thank you so much for sharing your insight and your experience on this. My pleasure. To hear these conversations again, subscribe to our podcast. Just search for Mississippi Edition in iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite podcasting app. Coming up, insect-borne viruses like West Nile are infecting more Mississippians. Why experts say it's preventable. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Your home for the arts and music is MPB Music Radio. From classical to bluegrass and everything in between, MPB Music Radio has a sound for every ear. For information on where to find MPB Music Radio, visit mpbonline.org. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is warning Mississippians about the growing number of illnesses from insect bites. MPB's Ashley Norwood reports. Karen Hill says she and her neighbors enjoy sitting outside after a long day. In 2012, the Jackson resident was bitten by a mosquito carrying the West Nile virus. Hill says she's fortunate to be alive. I can live with the symptoms, the headaches, the tremors, you know, just there's just a lot of different things. My lungs were even affected by it. So it's difficult to do any exercise. I mean, I do it, but I get out of breath easily. CDC is reporting an alarming uptick in illnesses from mosquito bites across the U.S. Last year in Mississippi, 63 West Nile cases were reported to the Mississippi Department of Health. Dr. Art Lace with the Methodist Rehabilitation Center has some advice on prevention. And the first and probably most important is to empty all standing water in your yard. Uh, The second recommendation is to avoid the peak hours when mosquitoes are most active. Mosquitoes are more active in dusk and dawn. Lace says a patient recently told him she believes she was infected six years ago, but doctors never confirmed West Nile by testing her blood. Lace says physicians must do a better job checking for the virus. We're not treating the virus. The virus is gone. It's long gone, but their symptoms persist. Uh, Years later, I have to try to figure out what she had when it would have been very simple 
to check a, a test in 2012. Tips on how to keep you and your family safe are available online at cdc.gov. Ashley Norwood, MPB News. Listen to MPB News on all your devices. Just download the MPB Public Media app or tell your smart speaker, play MPB Think Radio. Stay tuned to MPB Think Radio for a full slate of Mississippi-based programs all morning long. Coming up at 9 o'clock, it's Deep South Dining. Then at 10, it's Now You're Talking. And at 11 o'clock, stay tuned for Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit. I'm Karen Brown. Join us again tomorrow morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi edition, only on MPB Think Radio.